here's something that helps explain the difference between the testing situation in South Korea and the U.S. So South Korea, like European countries and Canada, has a universal single-payer insurance. And that means that it's easier to mobilize and also people know what to do. There is pretty much one answer for how to get testing. The U.S. is a patchwork of countless different systems. And so you can't say, here's exactly the steps that every American should take in order to get tested. And the other thing, Elizabeth, of course, is uh, government officials keep saying uh, Americans should check in with their primary care physician. One quarter of the American people, according to a study by the journal in the Journal of American Medical Association, one quarter of the American people don't have a primary care physician. And Jake, I would bet that many primary care physicians, even if you have one, if you call them, they would say. Exit polls from Mississippi show that 62 percent of Democratic primary voters in that state support Medicare for all. In fact, in every single one of the 20 states that have voted so far, a majority of voters have preferred a, quote, single government plan for all to private insurance. Over and over again, polls from across the country show that health care is a top issue for voters and that Bernie is the most trusted candidate on health care. But despite that, many voters still chose Joe Biden last Tuesday. So what gives? Well, it could be because nearly 30 percent of voters think that Joe Biden supports Medicare for all. In Wisconsin, that number is as high as 37 percent. And another 26 percent of Wisconsinites simply aren't sure. It's a similar story all across America which is why it's so important for us to clarify what Joe Biden does and doesn't stand for. To be clear, Joe Biden doesn't support Medicare for all. As we learned on last week's episode, his plan will actually leave 10 million Americans uninsured by design. That's a remarkable stance to take during this coronavirus pandemic, which experts agree is being exacerbated by the fact that as people develop flu-like symptoms, many are declining to seek out testing because the costs are just too high. One Pennsylvania man set up a GoFundMe page to help pay for nearly $4,000 in surprise bills after he was quarantined with his three-year-old daughter. Just listen to this exchange between Representative Katie Porter and Dr. Robert Cadleck, Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health and Human Services. For someone um, without insurance, do you know the out-of-pocket cost of a complete blood count test? No, ma'am, not not immediately. Do you have a ballpark? Uh, out of, with a copay, ma'am? No, the out-of-pocket, just the, the typical cost. Uh, I do not, ma'am. Okay, the CBC, a CBC typically costs about $36. What about the out-of-pocket cost for a complete metabolic panel? Ma'am, I'd have to pass on that as well. You have any idea you want to take a ballpark? I would say $75. Okay, 58 Even closer. How about flu A? Ma'am, again, I'd take a guess at about maybe 50 43 Flu, this is like the price is right. Flu B? Too high again. I, w- I would probably say 44 That's good. How about the cost of an ER visit for someone identified as high severity and threat? I'm sorry, ma'am, what was the question? How about the cost of an ER visit for somebody identified as having high severity or high threat? High severity, ma'am, that's probably about three to $5,000. Okay, that is 
$1,151. It, this all totals up to $1,331. That's assuming they aren't kept in isolation. Isolation can add up for one family already, $4,000. And fear of these costs are gonna keep people from being tested, from getting the care they need, and from keeping their communities safe. Remarkably, Representative Porter was able to pressure the CDC to use their existing authority to cover the cost of coronavirus testing. And luckily, the CDC isn't the only one seeing the light here. Across the political spectrum, from Hillary Clinton to Republicans like Ted Yoho of Florida, people who have long opposed Bernie's Medicare for All plan and his New Deal-style social programs now support a suite of solutions to the corona crisis, which could accurately be described as socialist. Even the Trump administration has waived interest on federal student loans and is waxing poetic about something that sounds pretty close to universal sick pay. But Joe Biden? True to form, he's managed to find himself on the wrong side of history once again. Last week, as the COVID-19 pandemic shut down schools, workplaces, and entire communities across the country, Joe Biden suggested that even if Medicare for All were to be passed by the House and the Senate and reach his desk as president, he would consider vetoing it. Let's assume, uh, and I've asked other candidates this kind of question, veto question, let's flash forward. You're president, Bernie Sanders is still active in the Senate. He manages to get Medicare for All through the Senate in some compromised version, the Elizabeth Warren version or, or other version. Nancy Pelosi gets a version of it through the House of Representatives. It comes to your desk, do you veto it? I would veto anything that delays providing the security and the certainty of healthcare being available now. Luckily, most Americans disagree with Joe Biden. And the newfound overwhelming support for Bernie's policies among conservative third-way Democrats and Republicans alike is downright refreshing. It's frustrating that it's taken a crisis of this magnitude for folks to get on board. But at the end of the day, this is an opportunity for us to make the bigger case. The basic principle here, that we're only as safe as the least insured person in America, that our economy is negatively affected when our people are sick, extends beyond this particular health crisis. The programs being advocated for now, from debt cancellation to free health care to paid sick leave, should exist for the personal crises that affect us all at some point in our lives. Right now, the government's newfound benevolence is motivated by a mixture of self-interest and altruism. If the uninsured gets sick, they can spread it to the insured. Even Tom Hanks isn't safe from the coronavirus. If people can't go to work, the markets crash and rich folks lose money too. But we need to formalize these programs that help everyday Americans so that they're in effect all the time, not just because of cataclysmic economic or pandemic effects that affect the 1%, but because this is a society and we're morally obligated to do so. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics driving the Bernie 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, 
and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. On this week's Hear the Burn, I spoke to renowned economist and public policy analyst Jeffrey Sachs about what COVID-19 means for our community and our economy, and to explain why Bernie Sanders' response, which includes paid leave, cost-free care, not just free testing, and a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures is the right approach. Next, I drill down on one of those issues, the halt on evictions, with New York housing attorney George Gardner III from Legal Services NYC, who helps us understand why Bernie's holistic, intersectional approach is the only compassionate choice. Let's get to it. Well, thank you so much for joining me on such short notice, Dr. Sachs. I wanted to talk to you because there is so much conversation in the media right now about both coronavirus and its effects on the economy. And I was hoping you could help us understand the connection there and then hopefully pivot and get into what you would recommend us do to try to meet both challenges. Uh, It is the topic of the day, importantly so, uh, the effects on the world and uh, on America uh, as part of the world will be very, very high and very significant, no matter which course of action uh, we take. Yeah. So so what is going on right now with the, the, the stock market? The reason uh, the stock market has uh, fallen so sharply is a combination of two things. Uh, one, that people are realizing a little bit behind the curve, uh, because the scientists have been saying this for weeks, that we are going to have a very serious crisis in this country because of this uh, coronavirus. Uh, That's the first point. The second point is the shocking and dismaying incompetence of uh, Trump and the administration. We are so far behind the curve. Every time the president has spoken in recent uh, days and weeks, uh, the market has uh, declined uh, even more because the uh, shocking uh, incompetence of this man, which was a ignored or overlooked uh, in the past uh, is a glaring risk for us today. When you talk about Trump's incompetence, what specifically are you referring to? What's happening uh, is that uh, we have a spreading virus. Mm -hmm. So it's an epidemic. Mm -hmm. And the evidence is that because of the natural spread through uh, contacts of infected people with uninfected, so-called susceptible people, the number of people infected tends to increase dramatically, indeed, uh, at what's called a geometric or exponential rate. Every few days, the number would tend to double. The scientists aren't sure exactly the doubling rate, and it also depends on the location, whether it's densely populated areas or low populated areas will make a difference. Uh, But it's tending to double roughly every three to six days, say, uh, depending on location. That's astounding to go from a few cases, double, then double, then double. It turns into a full-blown mass crisis uh, in a matter of weeks. This is what happened in China. This is what has happened in Italy and other parts of Europe, and now it's happening in the United States. There are methods to limit 
the spread and even possibly to turn the epidemic back towards zero. In other words, uh, to have the people who are infected not infecting more than are currently infected, but uh, fewer. But so far, the uh, only successes of achieving that turnaround involve almost a massive shutdown of large parts of the economy. The term that the experts use is social distancing. In other words, keep people away from each other so they're not infecting each other. But the reality is, uh, given how infectious uh, this virus seems to be, the amount of distancing that's needed is dramatic. Mm. In the case of China, three major kinds of actions were taken. This is back in January and February. The first uh, of the measures uh, was virtual quarantine of the province, uh, Hubei, where the epicenter of the epidemic, Wuhan City, started, and even stronger measures uh, in Wuhan City. Those were later extended to almost all of China. A real closure of intercity travel, for example, and then major limits on movement within Wuhan city itself, even uh, the need to show uh, evidence of the need to move and tremendous amount of personal monitoring that was taking place with the very extensive contacts between the public health officials uh, and the public in a city of many million uh, people. And the third was uh, other measures to stop uh, all meetings, closing schools, closing much of the economy. This seems, though the evidence is not complete, to have made a decisive turn. That's the best judgment. There are probably still unmeasured cases, but there's been a dramatic turnaround. But at the cost, essentially, of a lockdown of the economy and a, really a shutdown of life for tens of millions of people and uh, really for hundreds of millions of people, perhaps not so extreme. Uh, then uh, in Italy, uh, we're seeing a drama playing out that is startling. Italy today has closed down all the shops except for uh, the food stores mm. uh, so uh, and the pharmacies. So, you know, Italy, Italy is a, <laughs> a, a country of shops. <laughs> the public squares, the piazzas are empty. Uh, people in Milan are at home. People in Rome are at home. Much of the economy has uh, closed down. And this is another drama. Italy hasn't clearly even turned the epidemic, but the early evidence is that these rather stark measures of the last few days are leading to a peak and some decline. Now, in the United States, we haven't uh, really even started this. Some schools are being closed down. Some larger meetings are being closed down. But we are still very far from the kinds of measures that have been taken elsewhere. The likelihood is that this virus is still being transmitted and that we are still in an epidemic phase. What's also quite clear from health workers around the country, people are not being tested. The test kits are not there. The sheer incompetence of our uh, public health system, of course, uh, the shocking foolishness uh, of Trump 
all of this has meant massive delays, a massive spread of the epidemic, and the fact of the matter that we don't even know where we are today, because if we're measuring some thousand something cases, the actual could be 10 times that because we're just not doing the testing. So we're very far behind the curve. We do not have the national policies in place. We do not have clarity. But my sense is that there's no good news on the horizon right now, one way or another. If the incompetence and the bumbling and the narrow-mindedness of the Trump administration continues, this epidemic is going to continue to spread rapidly Mm -hmm. with the consequent effects on lives lost, a lot of suffering and an inevitable dislocation. If we were to have a decisive set of actions, that implies a big reduction of uh, economic activity, of personal movement that is uh, absolutely uh, unexpected right now and uh, definitely not part of our normal experience in the United States. So it seems like one of the only affirmative interventions that Donald Trump has pursued so far is to call for this $1.5 trillion bailout, as it were, that doesn't appear to have been especially effective. Can you talk us through the reasoning there and what actually happened? Well, first of all, I can never understand the reasoning of uh, anything Trump does. So I'm not going to go too far into trying to uh, figure out what he does. Uh, Everything is uh, based on uh, political calculation, personal greed, family business, uh, or uh, his instincts to help his uh, business friends, uh, not the people that really are in need. If we are going to go to a significant social distancing, to use that term, in other words, really a clampdown on economic activity in at least significant parts of our country, we need a coherent and consistent approach uh, that gives uh, households the means to get through this, that gives uh, workers paid leave, that allows for access to medical care, to testing in a broken healthcare system, in which, as uh, Bernie says uh, all the time, reminding the American people, more than 80 million people are either not at all insured or are dramatically underinsured right now. So we need direct help for people, whether it's workers or people who are exposed or people who are in self-isolation or people who need testing or people who are ill. We need that kind of help. Then, of course, we are going to need an economic strategy because business activity in a control scenario will go down sharply for weeks at a minimum, Mm -hmm. uh, two months, three months. Nobody really knows how long uh, the control has to be in order to not only break the transmission in the short term, but not have it rebound quickly uh, after the control. These are hard choices. They've not been worked out city by city, state by state. There is no national policy or national guideline on any of this because of this administration lacking the skills and talent and uh, clarity of purpose to do that. But we need to do it. And our governors and our mayors need to do it, even if 
the president of the United States is incapable of doing it. Is this the moment where people finally get what Bernie has been saying for 40 years, which is that we're only as strong as the most vulnerable person in our community? Bernie has been right on that, uh, not only morally, but also practically. Uh, That's uh, the point of what we're experiencing right now. I just read today's uh, Wall Street Journal editorial. You know, each deep crisis, the Wall Street Journal editorial page writes something reasonable. Uh, So today the editorial was uh, quite reasonable. What are the guidelines? How is this going to work? Why? Because uh, the banks and Wall Street and the Wall Street Journal writers themselves are in New York City facing an epidemic. So they are thinking today of themselves and their families and their neighborhoods, and they wrote something perfectly reasonable. It's interesting, the last time I remember a reasonable Wall Street Journal editorial was uh, just after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, uh, when they said, oh, we have to have some collective action to prepare a collapse. But they are nasty and cynical that as soon as the crisis is over, it's back to rugged individualism for the poor who can't help themselves and all the social breaks and uh, public breaks for the rich. So don't trust the elites or the Republican Party They know right now this is a dire situation for themselves. This is an epidemic that's not going to spare the Republican people. That's not going to spare people in the White House who are being exposed to coronavirus, uh, who are not going to uh, spare people in Congress. So they're saying something that makes sense. But when this crisis is over, they will go back to nastiness unless the American people take the real lesson of this. And the truth is, of course, the American people have supported what Bernie Sanders says, that we need guaranteed health care for all. It's been the lobbies, the money, the corruption of our political system, not the opposition of the broad public that has supported this. That's why we have to support Bernie to stop, to fight against the corruption, because when this crisis is over and God help us, we hope that that's soon and with minimal damage. We have to then take this politically to say the measures that were put in place to help ensure that everybody had sick leave, that everybody could get testing for free, everybody could get treatment for free. These are general principles for how a society should function, not just in the midst of an epidemic. And that's going to be our political fight very, very soon. Right now, the political fight is to get past this pandemic with the least loss of life and the least suffering and the most social inclusion and social justice, but then not to let, again, the greed, the elites, the Republican cynicism, which is unbounded, take charge again, just as they did after 2008. You know, I'm old enough to remember 2016 when we had the leading Democratic candidate, Hillary Clinton, saying things like wanting universal free point of service care was akin to wanting a pony. And now, given the current crisis and the context of the current crisis, it seems obvious that 
it's essential to our kind of community survival. So do you think that this kind of cynicism is going to be kind of permanently damaged, you know, that we are going to have a more humanistic approach going forward that understands that we're all in this together? I think the point is uh, also that we need a public approach to control this uh, epidemic. It can't be done by for-profit entities. We won't have the testing, uh, the policy needs, uh, and the response uh, through a private for-profit system. Now, that is one of the reasons why we're just so far behind the curve on this epidemic. We don't even think straight about health. Our system is geared towards making money out of illness, not protecting public health. This is a basic point. That's also the more general point why Bernie is right about these services being available in non-epidemic times also. It's not that they're free, it's that they are publicly financed. It is a single-payer, public-financed, public health system that actually delivers health at lower costs. That's the point. To say this is a pony or we can't afford it is mainly at this point a lie, not just a misunderstanding. What Bernie is proposing for healthcare is cheaper than the current system. It's cheaper. The reason it's cheaper is that it is a public system with prices for the common good, not a monopoly for money system with prices set by those with market power. So the idea that, oh, it's nice what Bernie Sanders is saying, but we can't afford it, is at this stage a lie because it has been revealed so many times that it is actually lower expenditures, not higher. It's not higher because it's moral. It's lower and also moral because it directly confronts the monopoly power of the drug companies, the monopoly power of the big hospitals and the insurance companies by saying, no, we're going to reimburse at the costs of health system, not to provide you with salaries of tens of millions of dollars or millions of dollars uh, for uh, people at the top of this private for-profit system. That's the point. It's not a pony. It is for our lives. Bernie's been right about that. All of the data, all of the studies show this. But the Wall Street Journal lies on every other day uh, other than the pandemic because uh, they're really uh, serving the interests of that top lobby rather than the interests of uh, the working people. So this episode will be airing next Tuesday, which is another big election day. So I'm curious, what do you want to say to people? What should people have front in mind as they head to the polls on Tuesday? People should understand that Bernie Sanders has been right for decades. Uh, If Bernie Sanders were president today, this epidemic would be in the direction of control. When he spoke about what to do, about this epidemic, he talked about what the scientists, the public health experts, the frontline medical practitioners are telling them. It was based on evidence, it was based on logic, it was based on reason, and it was based on a heart and social justice. 
this is the point of what America needs, which is leadership that knows what it's doing, that is competent, uh, that is directed to the common interest. One thing I can say for sure, we are going to get to Bernie's agenda and success because the eyes are being open to the realities right now the hard way. But the lessons of this epidemic are that we cannot tolerate, we can't uh, suffer anymore the idiocy and the cruelty uh, of uh, such a president as we have right now. And we can't go on with a health system designed to make uh, private money, not for public health. We cannot risk this any longer in this country. This is what I hope uh, people consider when they're voting now in the primaries and when they're voting in November. This is our future. Thank you so much, Dr. Sachs. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for doing it. Happy to speak with you. I mean, this idea, Jim, of a national holiday, right, being declared uh, a week, two weeks, where you close the markets. I mean, I know this sounds, I don't know, crazy. And yet there are more and more people who I think are sort of of that belief where the government pays the payrolls and, you know, the U.S. focuses on health. Right. I mean, it's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, but everything just backs up and we have, and that's it. Markets are, 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 uh, are closed. The banks can only disperse money. This is about the idea that we can keep people solvent enough so that there will be and companies solvent enough so we can test everybody and get back to work. I don't know whether whether holiday is correct, David, because I think that you don't want interruption. You don't want people like, let's say if you don't do a holiday, right? What do you do with dividends? Wouldn't your canyon isn't the prudent advice of every board of directors to cancel the dividend? Is that right? A lot of people move, but it's every man for himself out there. It's, it's, it's pull down your revolver, <laughs> do whatever you have to do to make sure you survive. Your understanding duty demands that you do that. I'm really glad to be joined today by George Gardner, who's a housing attorney in New York. And George, what I wanted to ask you about was that one aspect of what Bernie Sanders has called for to respond to this coronavirus pandemic is to put a moratorium on evictions, eviction proceedings. So can you help us understand why that's important as someone who is in these proceedings all the time representing clients? Absolutely. I mean, it's a critical call, and um, I'm so happy to have heard that. In my practice in the New York City Housing Court, the practice of, of housing defense, and particularly for tenants, is a high-volume practice. That means the cases happen quickly, and there's a lot of people who come through the courthouse on a daily basis. Having a moratorium on evictions in this time where public health officials are calling for social distancing, are calling for self-quarantines, things of that sort, in order to inhibit the spread of COVID-19 is really critical having a moratorium on these evictions allow people to have the opportunity to, to actually comply with what officials are asking for and not be afraid that in doing so, they will jeopardize other aspects of their lives. So this is one of those areas where you know people talk about intersectionality, but this is where the pedal hits the metal, right? So an eviction proceeding is kind of, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, the last post in the road before you might have to be evicted from your home, your family and whoever else is living there with you kind of out on the street. So it's not the kind of thing that you would want to skip no matter how kind of exigent or threatening the health concerns are, right? So is the idea that 
We don't want people thinking, gosh, I have to do this, kind of coercively forced to come into these proceedings where it's a, a crowded courtroom and a really high risk of exposure because they're competing between two really high risks, losing your home and contracting this virus. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. It's, a, it's an impossible choice and it's almost a cruel one to force people to have to make. Folks who are facing eviction are already in crisis situation. And often my clients are not dealing just with the threat of eviction, but they have their pre-existing health issues. Mm. They are caregivers to people who are already highly susceptible to this disease. They have children, right, and trying to manage that aspect of their lives. And so this housing court, uh, making court appearances, being fearful of defaults in a space where there is, again, high volume, lots of interaction, just uh, a place that makes one highly susceptible to spreading or contracting the virus is something that we shouldn't be asking anyone to do and certainly not forcing them to do under threat of eviction. George, can you tell us a little bit more about where you practice and what a a typical client of yours is facing? Well, okay, so I'm in uh, New York City. Uh, Specifically, I, I practice in the borough of Brooklyn. And, you know, my clients are dealing with a whole host of issues that could look like anything from being in the courthouse and, and like I said, dealing with the the multiple health issues or or family issues. You know, often my clients are dependent upon city agencies to, you know, cover their rent or to cover arrears when they get behind. They are often dealing with precarious employment situations. Often, you know, so many of my clients, for instance, rely on driving for Uber or Lyft. Those temporary employment or sort of unsecure, insecure employment um, situations Mm -hmm. often make them even more vulnerable to being brought into housing court, right? And so you have these sort of circumstances are playing against each other where the issues of employment outside of the courthouse brings them into the courthouse, which puts them right back out through evictions. And so we have to have a place where we can stop the the threat of people being in the, the situation of being contracting this virus but also, you know, it's sort of a, a cruel ask to say that, you know, in this time, in order to top, stop the spread, we need to ultimately allow people to, to, to self-quarantine or, or distance themselves socially, but we're not going to give them spaces to do, to do so. So what you're saying is that you could end up having a person who, let's say, drives an Uber, who is not getting as much money, isn't get, having as many clients because of the coronavirus and people not using public transportation as much, who then is struggling to meet his rent payments as a consequence or was already struggling and now that issue has been compounded. And now he's in a situation or she's in a position uh, situation where she's being asked to come into court to defend against that eviction and now incur ad- the additional hazard of becoming infected. No, I mean, that's exactly right. And, you know, even for these cases, I'm not. it's not just about the people who, could certainly, you know, being are at risk of being dragged into court, right? That's certainly a whole host of people. But there are a number. I have dozens of cases of my own. My office handles hundreds of cases, thousands of cases that are currently in process, that are various stages in that process. We have, you know, a deadline-driven process where there are clients who currently have judgments against them, currently have warrants that are issued. And when We need to, for instance, rely on other city agencies, rely on nonprofit organizations for charitable assistance. 
all of those things are, are part of the puzzle in order to meet deadlines, payment deadlines, and things of that sort. And when those deadlines get missed, these deadlines are scheduled every day for different clients. If a deadline is missed, it puts them you know, at risk of a marshal showing up to their door to, to lock them out of their home. Just hours before this, you know, we received communication that New York City is putting a one-week moratorium on evictions. Mm. But the moratorium on evictions is not enough. There are many interim steps that jeopardize uh, a person legally and, you know, set them up for greater risk of eviction, even after the eviction or moratoriums themselves is lifted. So if you consider um, default judgments, for instance, mm. um, if you don't show up for time on court, if you're delayed for any reason, if you are, you know, having symptoms and not sure that you should actually come to court, mm. not guaranteeing tenants in this moment the opportunity to avoid defaulting, um, which allows a warrant to be issued, which then allows a marshal to evict a person. Without that kind of safety, you still have people with this type of uncertainty that doesn't allow them to make a decision that is safe, not only for themselves, but they're for their families and for the rest of the public. For people who haven't been as close to this as you have, I mean, I'm sure you're an excellent attorney and very few of your clients have ever been evicted, but can you paint us a, a bit of a more, you know, a more detailed picture, a more visceral picture of what it is that people are facing when they are, in fact, evicted in a city like New York, which is so expensive and where there's so few housing opportunities? That's the thing. New York City is constantly under housing emergency. And I believe the way we're defining it is like less than 5% of the residential housing stock is actually available for, for residency, for occupancy. And so it's already difficult enough to find a place and it's doubly difficult to find a place that is affordable. And then once you find a place that you can afford, it's often difficult just to maintain your payments, right? Depending on how you how you're employed. Again, you know, if you have if you don't have secure salaried employment, you're going to be facing a circumstance where you're always trying to make ends meet. Folks often spend far more than the 30% of their, you know, take-home income on their on their housing. And any financial, small financial disruption is going to exacerbate their situation and put them at greater risk for eviction. If there is a death in the family, if there is a sick child, school expenses generally, all sorts of, frankly, just the basic holidays and social gatherings, you know, the, the, the small sort of things that come up in order for people to live and love their families, any type of, of minor disruption can cause a person to be under threat of being brought into court. And then that itself is a whole other process, which can really be things along to a person losing their home. And when someone loses their home, it creates a reverberating effect throughout their lives, right? That stability, when that stability is removed, it affects a person's health. It affects, in turn, a person's ability to keep a job in order to sort of maybe get back into a home or get into a home that is more affordable. It affects people's relationships where they have to you know, split up from their families. And people have lives. Again, folks you know, have terminal illnesses. I have clients who are HIV positive. I have clients who are dealing with domestic violence and who are survivors of domestic violence. Often, you know, if an order of protection is, uh, comes into the household, it's often maybe the abuser is excluded. That person may have been the person bringing in the, the, the primary finances into the household, bringing the primary income into the household. And so that type of situation can exacerbate, you know, someone's already precarious financial situation. 
So what do you think about Bernie's approach? I really do appreciate it. You know, you hear a moratorium on evictions and, you know, it can be easily twisted into something that sounds like a giveaway. Hmm. And in fact, you know, I appreciate the compassion that comes out of it because it's, it's an acknowledgement that someone's home is a centerpiece of their lives. And it affects not only individual people, but people who rely on uh, tenants and who, who rely on homeowners in order to care for them. People who can't care for themselves mm. also need homes. They need the po- folks who, who are the head of those homes to have somewhere to keep them and love them and take care of them. Mm. And that compassion, I think, is a critical part that is really missing from many of our, our policy discussions today. And I'm so glad to hear Barney talking about that. Well, thank you, George. I really appreciate you sharing your perspective with us today. Thanks again, Rihanna. That's it for this week. Hear the Burn is produced by Ben Dalton and Christopher Moore. Let us know what you think at hearTheBurn at BernieSanders.com or else take to Twitter with the hashtag HearTheBurn. I love to read your feedback on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get these episodes. So be sure to rate, review, or like us whenever you get a chance. Till next week.